You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Luke Holman, who is the founder and CEO of First Root Inc., whose mission it is to create the next generation of impact investors with their unique go-to-market strategy that supports all stakeholders as youth using participatory budgeting to invest real money in their schools. Luke is the author of four books, numerous articles, and cited as an inventor on more than a dozen patents. Luke is an international recognized expert in agile software development, and Luke is a co-organized the first agile conference in 2003. On today's show, we sit down and we talk about for the different stages of a company's growth, how can they collaborate using games to get results? What is it like living in Silicon Valley and not being able to raise venture capital for your startup? How did you go about planning and preparing for the sale of your last company? How important is teaching financial literacy? And what is project-based learning by doing? This and much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Luke, I'm super excited to have you on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Before we start, I want to thank Hanahai, who's allowing us to use their facilities for today's recording. We are recording in front of a live studio audience. Yes. <laughs> yes. There we go. There we go. Luke, before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about your career up until this point? Well, I'm. Uh, today's my birthday, which means I'm a little older and my career got a little longer. So we have to be careful about that. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. We Thank brought you. you some strawberries. That's right. I appreciate that. That's very thoughtful. So everyone's career gets interesting and complex as, as it goes along, but I'll, I'll give you some highlights. I started in the technology field, pulling cable underneath raised floor for electronic data systems. So I started about as literally as humbly as you can start by you know, people will say, ah, I worked my way from the ground up. And actually, I worked way, way from beneath the ground up in a big data center. From there, I spent 10 years at Electronic Data Systems and I did a variety of activities. I didn't have a degree when I started EDS. And so along the way of working at EDS, I went to the University of Michigan and got my bachelor's and master's degree in computer science and engineering. And then after EDS, I went to a small firm and Dallas Object Space, which did object-oriented training, consulting, and mentoring when object-oriented programming was initially kind of hot. And then in 96, I moved to the Bay Area, and I started working at a company called Smart Patents, which became Origin Systems. And I was the head of engineering and product management for the world's first patent portfolio database. So it was taking all of the world's patent data and making it a data warehouse that you could interact with and query and, and do interesting things with. That stayed until 2000. And in 2000, I had a company I created in the financial space that failed because starting a company in March of 2000 was not optimal timing. <laughs> so we had five months money saved. And I remember going to my wife and saying, hey, I want to start this company. She's like, yeah, this is a really great idea. Let's do it. I'll support you. I'm like, okay. And after about four months, she said, how are we doing on money? I'm like, ah, don't worry yet. And a month and a half later, she's like, how are we doing on money? And they're like, yeah, I'd start worrying. <laughs> so from there, I went to a turnaround, uh, Preview Systems. And at Preview Systems, they did software try before you buy technology. So it was a really interesting company, but it was one of the dot bombs. And when I say one of the dot bombs, I mean one of the 48 companies profiled in the Wall Street Journal of how ludicrous Silicon Valley had become. They had 300000 in revenue with a $1.6 billion market cap. And I was brought in by Heidi Risen, well-known VC. It was one of her portfolios to help turn it around. So we turned it around. Not turned it around, turned it around, but we organized it well enough to sell it. So we sold that to an Israeli security firm, Aladdin Knowledge Systems. And I worked at Aladdin, integrating our technology, bringing the teams together, organizing a global team. And I worked there until the first Gulf War, when traveling in the Middle East was not actually recommended. So then I started consulting. On January 3rd of 2003, 
because it was still nuclear winter in jobs in terms of Silicon Valley. And one thing leads to another. And I've been doing my own companies since 2003 in various forms. Now, there's a little bit more information that you didn't share with the audience, which I'm really curious about how it set you up kind of for this entrepreneur journey. Professional figure skater or partner figure skater. Right. You have four kids. You're a best-selling author. You have all these things. How does having such a diverse background really prepare you for the entrepreneur life? Yeah. So let's start with skating. I started skating. I'm the youngest of six kids and all of my brothers and sisters played basketball. And so, of course, I had to have the sport that was unique to me. They built a skating rink near my house and I wanted to learn skating. And that was when I was 11. And it was amazing because it was so fun to skate, except I wasn't very good at it when I first started. My first coach actually said, you know, I don't think this sport is for you. Maybe baseball would be better or basketball or something. And so I found a second coach. And after a couple of months, the, the coach pulls me aside and pulls my mom aside. You know, you try, he tries really hard, but this may not be his sport. So I found a third coach. And so I think that there's a number of attributes of becoming an athlete or being an athlete that relate to success and being an entrepreneur. Of course, skating evolved for me. I did it through high school. Eventually, I moved to Detroit to skate at the Detroit Skating Club. So there's a few powerhouse training centers in America for pairs figure skating and dance figure skating. And Detroit is one of the powerhouses for pairs and dance at the Detroit Skating Club and the Ypsilanti Skating Club. And so I eventually got to be national junior pairs champion. And then I was on the international team for a few years. And the seniors, we got to eighth place. And so there's so many parallels around how excellence works, if you will. Think about Silicon Valley and how it's the place where we come together with great technology, with capital, with ideas. Uh, Silicon Valley, it's cool to be a geek, right? So there's, there's these places that, that people congregate, they gather and, and they come together. Well, that's the same thing with elite athletes, right? Who am I going to train with? Like terrible skaters? No, I'm going to train with the best skaters. If you watched Michael Jordan's recent autobiography on, I think it was Netflix or Amazon, but they had this show with Michael Jordan and they talk about how when he was getting back into basketball from baseball, he was also doing Space Jam and they, Disney built him an entire gym. And then the people in Disney were like astounded that all of the competitors from the NBA were practicing with Jordan. And you just, I mean, who's Jordan going to practice with? Like some high schooler? It doesn't happen that way. So if you, if you want to be a tiger, you got to go to the tiger den and you got to be in that environment where excellence lives. And so you, you see that manifested in a bunch of ways. So that's, that's one of the many ways with, in which being an elite athlete helped me understand what it means to be a successful entrepreneur. Also, I, I'm curious, three coaches, how much of that are being an entrepreneur? Do you say there's that grit factor of keep pursuing even when people say no? And also the coachability, like how important are those two traits? Because in your example, it shows that you have both those. Yeah, it's critical. Uh, when you're a CEO of a startup in the Bay Area, everyone wants to give you advice. I mean, everyone wants to give everyone advice. And like, trust me, if you're at a, a cocktail party in the Bay Area, like, oh, I, I know what Google should do, or I know what Meta should do. And I'm like, really? Since, since when did you create a, you know, enormous multi-billion dollar or trillion dollar company? So everyone wants to give you advice. The trick is knowing who to listen to. So you do have to be coachable. But finding appropriate coaches, finding appropriate advisors is actually part of the art of being successful, who to listen to, and also to realize when you might need a specialty coach. So I don't have coaches for every part of my business. I have coaches that I've put together that help me in specific parts of my business. Just like in, in skating, we had a choreographer who was different than our strength coach, who was different than our off-ice dance coach, who was different than our lift coach. So we, and you see this in football teams, right? You're like, oh, that's the offensive line coach. Oh, that's a defensive line coach. Sure, different skills, different qualities. And so entrepreneurs who are coachable and become more successful, you'll find that they're, they're not gonna have just three people they listen to or three people they listen to for the same reasons. They're going to listen to someone who might know more, a little bit more about marketing and sales to help them in their marketing and sales or their go-to-market strategy or 
someone who knows a little bit more about finance that can help them in understanding their financial structures and, and their financial strategy. That's pretty critical. How does a new entrepreneur go about finding that right coach in each of those if they don't kind of have the, I don't want to say experience or way to kind of sift through the kind of BS, I guess would be the best way of putting it. You got to ask and you got to identify people who have been through what you're going through. Many times if you're raising capital, you don't always have to raise capital. In my last company, we didn't, we weren't VC funded. I built, I customer funded or bootstrapped a enterprise B2B platform, SaaS company. So We're going to have to go really deep into that later. Yeah. That not raising capital in Silicon Valley. Whoa. There's yeah. A- I mean, it, I think it's so freaking cringy because what you hear about in Silicon Valley is like, I am so old fashioned because people are like, hey, how much money did you raise? And I'm like, uh, how many customers have you served or how much revenue have you made? Like, like I care about how much money you've raised. And in Silicon Valley, <laughs> having the amount of money you raised be the cool sign of the badge of honor is really perversely skewed. How about how much value you're creating for your customers? How about how much revenue you've created as the litmus test of how actually good you really are? I mean, I see a lot of people raise money and I'm sure they have clever sounding business plans and they've sweet talked the entrepreneur or the VCs or the VC was having enough tequila the night before that they came in and they, yeah, it's a good idea. Let's invest. (laughs) Of course, it's going to be a great idea. Woo. I mean, that is, that cannot continue to be, although it will be for a while because there's billions to invest. But yeah, the traditional model of Silicon Valley investing of how well you're doing by how much you've raised is absolutely daft. And that doesn't mean I'm against VCs. For all you VCs out there, I'm raising. So give me a call. It just means that I'm a very practical and sober entrepreneur and I want to talk about the things that provide value. Okay. So things that provide value, how does it, how did you go about or how should someone go about prioritizing projects in your beginning starting up a company? Sometimes you look at it from a word called Akagi. Um, and Akagi is this kind of intersection of what you're passionate about what you're good at, what the world needs, and what you can make money at. And when you can get all those circles aligned in the center, you've got everything you need to have something that's truly sustainable. And that's really hard to get. But every kind of company, regardless of where it started or how successful it becomes, is trying to fill an unmet need or an unsolved problem. Now, if the problem isn't worth solving, the company fails. If the market isn't big enough, the company fails, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I have no doubt of the desire of an entrepreneur to want to solve a problem. And from there, you kind of just do all the basics that were taught in business school. Or if you're like me and you're an engineer and you didn't go to business school, there's plenty of content out there to help you build out a good company. You do market research, you do market sizing, you do your homework, you identify, uh, you build prototypes, you do testing, you do concept and hypothesis validation. And eventually, I want to go back to this notion of grit and resilience. And sometimes you just believe in spite of the data. When I started my last company, Contenio, there was a lot of data that said, this is not going to work. And I said, okay, we're going to keep going because we believe in this and we think it's going to work. And sometimes a thing isn't a thing until it becomes a thing right? It's like there's this moment where you will it into existence. And that doesn't always happen, but it can happen. And I sure think it happened at Contenio. I'm curious there because most, uh, not most, but a lot of the companies, they will build it, then discover that it might not work. Whereas in your situation, it's not only like you almost discovered it wouldn't work, then you built it anyway. Yeah. Well, we were told it wouldn't work. At Contenio, when I did go to the investors and say, this is what I want to build, they're like, yeah, we're not going to invest in it. That's not going to work. And I'm like, yeah, I think it's going to work because we've got customers who are saying, and people looking at our prototypes that they want it. So I'm just going to go build it anyway. So it was more of a, from the fundraising perspective. I think the other part of this is that there are growth models And I learned this from Heidi Royce, and I I spent a lot of time with her years ago. And one of the things I learned from her, which I think is really profound wisdom, is it can be a great business, but not be a good VC investment. Because VCs have a set of criteria that they're trying to maximize. And so they really are setting themselves up for that. We know everything's going to fail, but we're looking for that one company that's 100 to 1 return. So you got to convince me as the investor that you're a hundred to one return. 
And I think that, again, it, particularly in Silicon Valley, it's not even get a home run or go home. It's like get a grand slam home run while pitching a perfect game or go home. And that's okay. But there are many businesses that you can build that are really great businesses that don't require or don't need VC funding or are not appropriate for a VC to fund because it's not going to create the kind of return that they're looking for, even though it creates a great return. Do you think there's a lot of founders that are here in Silicon Valley that were shut down by VCs, but actually they could have just built really good companies? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. That's part of the, the culture that we live in. Oh, no, I meant like they decided not to build these companies because they're shut down by VCs, where if they... Oh, you mean they went to a VC and the VC said, said, no, that's a bad idea? Yeah. Yeah, well, they shouldn't have taken... The good news is that the VC made a good choice because that's not a founder who's committed. So the VC was smart enough to smoke out that, yeah, that's not the right person to invest in. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I remember one time I was recruiting a friend of mine, Scott Karowski, a really great engineer, and I'm recruiting him to Origin. Right. And this was the, my first company. So I really believed in origin. And we get down to the final part of the negotiation. He's like, okay, when are you going to leave this company? I said, when they pry the key out of my bloody hands because they lock the door and it won't work anymore. And I keep trying. He said, okay, I'll join. That's what you want in the founder. What about the first employees? Well, he was an early employee, but yeah, <laughs> you want to have that culture too. You want to have that. We're committed. As the company grows, how can you use, and I'm pivoting a little. Oh, you so. pivot away, man. How can you? Are there, although, are you really pivoting or are you just using a cool term in Silicon Valley? Are you truly pivoting? <laughs> yes, I'm not pivoting. You're I'm not just, pivoting. No, That's okay. You're just, you're just taking our tr- conversation in another gentle direction, well, which I appreciate. I'm, I'm, I'm setting up to hand you a softball. Okay, well, here. I appreciate that. I mean, you know. Tell us how you can use <laughs> board games in, in collaborating, how you can use board games to get results. Well, I wouldn't use board games to get results. I would use innovation games to get results. So innovation games, hey, for everyone who hasn't bought this book, you should. It's called Innovation Games, Creating Breakthrough Products Through Collaborative Play. Who's the author? I, I think it might be. It's a really, it's a, it's a strikingly handsome author. Oh, geez. Yes, I wrote that book. But innovation games are, it was the, really the first book in the emergent genre called Serious Games. And so a serious game is a collaborative approach to solving a business problem. So it's, it's a game and it's not gamification and we can separate gamification from game, but a serious game is a game that we play to solve a business problem. Now, why in the world would a game work? Well, to understand why a game would work, we have to understand what a game is. So what are the attributes of a game or what makes something a game? Well, a game has a goal, something to be achieved. It has a field of play or a space of play. It has a mechanism of feedback and keeping score and knowing how we're progressing. It has a set of resources that we can use to accomplish our objective. It has a set of rules by which we know how to accomplish our objective and how we interact. And one of the things that's really, really unique about a game, it has voluntary participation. On this side of the line, I'm a completely rational, normal person. I can hold the ball with my hands. I cross over into this line and I decide that I can't touch the ball with my hands. I can only kick it unless I'm a special person wearing a different color jersey in a box painted on the ground. And in that space, I can touch the ball with my hands. And we consider that completely rational. Or any normal person could walk up to the stupid hole and drop the cup in it but all these irrational people decide that they have to whack it with a stick and count how many tries it takes, right? And so humans invent games. And one definition of a non-serious playful game is the voluntary choice to overcome an arbitrary obstacle. So what I did in the book Innovation Games was I looked at the problems people are facing in business. And one of the big problems that I want to use as a highlight is this notion of how do I allocate resources how do I do portfolio management and portfolio prioritization? So here's the model in every company, in every division, in every department. Marketing has an $80 million budget and $120 million worth of things that they want to spend. Engineering has a $30 million budget and $40 million in backlog requests. HR has 
a budget from the company of 16 million of benefits and things that they can do, and they want to do 20 million. So every company has this requirement to prioritize and allocate funds. And most of the time, it's just garbage, right? We just sit down and we argue the loudest person wins, the highest paid person wins. That's called the hippo. So the highest paid person's opinion wins, the loudest person. Well, what if we gamified that? And not by gamifying it in the wrong way, by playing a game that enabled them to interact in a way that would solve the business problem. And so for the listeners, Sean is referring to the idea that imagine you could play a board game like Scrabble, except instead of a board game like Scrabble, it was actually your portfolio management challenge. And at the end of the game, you walked away with a prioritized project investment portfolio and in a way you felt good about. So you took something that was competitive and you made it a cooperative or a collaborative game. So that's what innovation games does in a number of areas of the business and in specifically or or most notably in the area of portfolio management and budget allocation. Now, a game like that, it sounds pretty sophisticated. How long would it take to actually read the rule book? Yeah, it's actually blindingly simple. So what we do is let's say, and I'm going to use very straightforward math. Let's say that you've got a budget of $80 million. You put eight players at the table, physical or virtual, and you give them an equal portion of the money. So now each of us sitting at this table has $10 million. And that could be $10 million of virtual money or $10 million on an online platform. And I built the online platform uh, at Contenio. And now we are collaborating in real time. So what we're seeing is you can imagine in your mind a collaborative spreadsheet where the columns are the players, each with a budget, and the rows are the possible investments. And here's the rules. Here's the list of items that we're going to make investments in, and you can spend your money any way you want, but unless the item is fully funded, it won't be done. Because what we want to do is we want to prevent what I call zombie projects. So zombie projects in a company are those partially funded initiatives that everyone knows are really just going to walk around trying to suck resources from other projects because they weren't properly funded. So you go through that process. And at the end of the game, that group has allocated their money according to the projects that they most want to fund. And this technique we call participatory budgeting. And it is an incredibly powerful technique because what I can do is I can now scale human collaboration. If I have, let's say, 160 people, directors and senior directors located around the world, I can run 20 of these games, then I can look at the results across 20 of these forums. So each forum produces a unique result of its prioritization. Now, let's say that there's six projects that are funded in all 20 forums. Easy. That's the ones we do because there's huge broad-based support for that. And let's say there's two projects that even though they were good enough to get into the game, no one funded. Well, that's easy. We don't do it. And I know it sounds kind of interesting to talk about this, but what's incredible about this process is it's something that's deeply human. And one of the most fundamentally wrong things about personal finance is that you never make a substantial or important financial decision alone, right? Would, would you go out and buy a brand new sports car without talking to your wife? She's nodding her head in one direction and I'm going to have to go with the no. <laughs> would you buy a vacation home without talking to your wife? Clearly, she's the boss of everything. No, she's very, not. It's not I'm that very, she's the boss of everything. I'm a very happy man and I know my answers. <laughs> would you buy stock in a company about to go IPO without talking to your financial advisor? I wouldn't get a glass of water without Michelle giving me the thumbs up. Right, Michelle? All right, live studio audience. Luke, go on, continue. The point is the opinions of other people matter. Yes. And if a company makes every decision based on ROI, what happens is ROI becomes ROI. Because what I'm doing is if my company has reduced the decision-making process of an investment to just a number, well, then I'm incented structurally to lie about the number to get what I think is important. Because if it's only ROI, how do I talk about the positive brand benefit? 
How do I talk about the fact that our employees are excited about this new technology they want to implement? How do I talk about the fact that partners will view us better or that maybe it has a part of our corporate values and our philanthropy in our company? How do I wrap all that up into an ROI number when there's these other factors? So the power of participatory budgeting in the corporate environment is that it lets me have conversations with peers about the things that matter. And you see these collaborative behaviors emerge that are just remarkable, where let's say you and I are in this game, this forum, and there's a line item for an item that's called $5 million. Well, you could solo fund it, but you rarely see solo funding in participatory budgeting, precisely because people want to indicate that they can collaborate and they can work together. It's a really amazing process. Now, something like this, it sounds like can only be used for big corporations. Is there a version or can it be modified for early stage companies? Oh, sure. I mean, an early stage company, let's just scale the numbers back. Let's say they've got a, they, let's go back to VCs. This is, VCs should be doing this with their portfolio companies. Let's say a, a VC does a series A round and let's pick a, a relatively normal series A, like say 8 million, 5 million somewhere. Let's say five. That, let's say sure five. the math will be easier. Yeah. The, so let's do 5 million. Now, let's say that the company allocates $3 million to the product development team and $2 million in sales and marketing and operations. Okay, so now I've got my $3 million budget. The innovation game version of this with customers is called buy a feature. So imagine that startup has a list of features that they might want to build, but they really want to confirm with their customers that those are the valuable features to build. Well, now I can take that same concept and instead of the participants being the internal people, I can bring in customers and I can run customer centric forums and I can say, here's our 20 features. Collectively, they cost $6 million. Our budget as a startup is 3 million. I'm gonna put uh, six people in the forum, six customers, and you each have 500,000. What will you buy? And as a market research technique, what you end up with is three things. You end up with the priorities as given by a group of customers. You're also given conditions of acceptance. Like, I want this item if it also does this. Like, yes, I want the single sign-on provided it connects into SAML and OAuth 2 at the same time. Okay, great. Technical things. But you'll also find justifications of why they're making those choices when customers talk with other customers. So what happens is, is that there's this technique of participatory budgeting that has these marvelous expressions. Internally, I can use it for portfolio management and internal investment choices. As a market research tool, I can use it when the players are customers to get a sense of what my customers' priorities are. And it's an amazing way for startups to use the same technique with their customers and get data that can help them inform their product development strategy. Other than the product development strategy, what about picking milestones? Do you have any games that people could say, let's come together and pick these milestones over the next 12 months or 18 months or, or that? Surprisingly, I don't. And the reason why is because, and this is one of my books was Beyond Software Architecture. And in Beyond Software Architecture, I provide a language or a pattern language or a set of techniques for building market-driven roadmaps. So most of the time, a roadmap is created from an internal perspective from a company saying, this is what I think I can deliver. I find that a little awkward because it's not about what you can deliver. It's about when customers are ready to receive value. And so when I say a market-driven roadmap, what I do is I do two things with companies. One is Every human market responds to a set of rhythms that repeat every year. So we have Halloween, we have Christmas. And if let's say you're a toy manufacturer, the value of releasing your toy after Christmas is near zero. So you have well-defined market windows of when you're going to release an offering. I grew up in Buffalo selling swimsuits in January in Buffalo not the best market window for swimsuits in the Buffalo area. When I'm working with other companies or when I'm advocating for how to build a roadmap, we start with the customer's perspective. When am I ready to receive value? Now, granted, there are some companies that can have kind of a relatively uniform structure. Like 
a social media company or, a, or other companies where there's generally uniform value. In the business-to-business world, in the business-to-consumer world, there are these rhythms that are associated with life that help us define optimal release windows for products and services. And that's where you want to start as a startup. You want to start with, what am I releasing into? Not, when can I choose to release my software? You'd mentioned kind of a natural rhythm, a natural life of, well, one, the, the outside market, but the company itself. When does that life start to go in the direction of a possible exit? Or when should that conversation start to come up in the company's life? Well, it depends on kind of the posture of the entrepreneur and the posture of the investors, I think. And I don't want to sound like a consultant, like saying it depends, but some companies are designed to be sold because they're probably not going to achieve an exit like an IPO. And I've seen this, for example, you see this with Cisco and some of the entrepreneurs that work with Cisco, like they'll look at Cisco's offerings and they'll kind of say, oh, there's this hole. And Cisco is well known in Silicon Valley for doing great acquisitions. And they use acquisitions to bolster their own internal research and development and fill in holes in their offering. So some entrepreneurs look at companies and say, oh, this this larger entity has this hole. I'm going to fill it. I'm going to get this to a certain point and I'm going to make an exit. And I think that those entrepreneurs are really remarkable because they're so clear about who they are and what they do and what they're good at. I think it's kind of folklore and hubris to think that you can be good at everything at all times, right? Very few people can take a company all the way through IPO, all the way through some corporate exit like that. And so I think that part of this choice of when in the company's life cycle is it appropriate to consider an exit, I think that's part of, well, who are the founders and what do they bring to the table and what's their experiences? Can you share about your past company when you had your exit? How did you prepare for it? When was that conversation done that you said, okay, it's now time? Yeah. So Contenio took, Contenio had about a 10 year life. And I think part of this was, like, had you walked up to me in the first two or three years of Continuous existence and said, we want you to sell your company, I'd be like, no, I'm having a blast. I'm like having so much fun and we're growing and we're learning that I don't really want to, I don't really want to sell. What happened for our journey was that a company in the Bay Area wanted to acquire us. They indicated they wanted to acquire us. They were a customer. And then through the acquisition talks, we found out it was going to be an acquihire. And that's a Silicon Valley term where you hire for the development talent and you shut down the product that you were acquiring and you, you know, basically give people a little bit of money, but they get absorbed in the company and they're immediately doing other stuff. And I remember going to our team and saying, okay, so-and-so wants to acquire us. It turns out that I figured out that this is an acquihire. I'm not really keen on it, but what do we all think? Because everyone has equity or should have equity in a Silicon Valley startup. And I wanted to get my leaders' opinions on that. And they said, well, who's the acquiring company? And I said, it's so-and-so. And they're like, yeah, we don't want to work there. <laughs> so we said no. And then we kept going and we looked at packaging our company for sale. And, and that was a waste of money. I hired an investment banking firm to try and help us sell the company after that. That was a waste of money because... Because it was the wrong investment banking firm, correct? It was the wrong investment banking firm. It wasn't you, Sean. Thank you, Lou. But then what happened was, is we were working for another company as consultants and getting to know them. And that company was Scaled Agile in Boulder, Colorado. And out of the blue, the, the founder of Scaled Agile, we were at dinner one night. He said, so what do you think you're going to do with Contenio? And I said, oh, I'm going to sell it one day. By that time, I had completely accepted that I was probably not the right person to take a company to an IPO. And I didn't like, I'm fine with that, right? Keep in mind, I'm an elite athlete. So when, when you're eighth in America and you're skating internationally, you kind of get a sense of how good you're going to be. Like the 60th ranked tennis player in the world doesn't really expect that they're going to somehow vault to number one in two years, right? Eventually you kind of understand, hey, I'm this good which is really good, but there's this next level that I may not get to, right? Like a backup NFL quarterback is a great quarterback, but they're not Tom Brady, right? So there's this stratification that occurs. And so going back to the story, uh, the founder of Scaled Agile said, so what are you going to do? I'm going to sell. Oh, 
what would you sell for? And I said, X. He's like, oh, that's a totally fair price. Yeah, I know how to do corporate valuations. I kind of didn't think much of it. The next morning, he calls me back and he said, we had a board meeting and we think you'd be a great fit. And I thought it would be a great fit and we'll buy you for that. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. But I knew them. It was a great fit. It was a great company. And I knew that they could make more of what Contenio had become than, than we could on our own. It was just a great fit. That sounds hilarious. Just over dinner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, if there's not a napkin in your past, you probably don't have a good startup, right? So you know, if you can't draw it on a napkin, it's probably not a good deal. Okay. So, so you sold your company. Yeah. After that, I mean, going back to the whole Silicon Valley, most times people go, I sold a company. Now I'm going to go to the investor side. I'm going to be that VC turning down startups and breaking hearts. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm going to be that VC who makes the 100 to one, you know, one killing and I you know, have more money than God. There you go. Why not go that route? Why keep building companies? Well, that is a question my wife has asked me. So one of the things that I think is also very problematic is that the ball doesn't go very far if you don't follow through. So after I sold the company, I was actually at the company that acquired us for a year and I really enjoyed it. And I completed my integration tasks and some of the employees from the acquisition more than two years ago are still there. I mean, they really made a good home for us. And that's part of having a really positive acquisition that's good for the employees, right? A true acquisition has to be, and I'm sure you know this, and I'm sure you coach entrepreneurs on this, but it really has to be good for all stakeholders. If it's not good for all stakeholders, you shouldn't do the acquisition. Do I feel like I had a good deal? Yeah. Do I feel if I worked harder, I might have had more money? I don't know. Maybe. Does the acquiring company feel like they had a good deal? Absolutely. Might they have paid more? I don't know. But, you know, bulls and bears make money and pigs get slaughtered, right? So don't be piggy. Uh, <laughs> um, or at least I'm not piggy. So, okay. So now, could I make investments? Yes, I have made some investments. So I, it's not like I'm not making angel investments. I've made a few angel investments, but I didn't, I didn't see myself at this point in my life becoming a VC. I do love coaching friends or entrepreneurs. I have a couple of entrepreneurs that I haven't made investments in that I coach. I have made a couple of angel investments in companies I do believe in. One is going to be a complete failure. It's okay. But three, I have holdouts for. <laughs> But no, I, I felt I had more to contribute to the world. And I think that building companies is a really good way to contribute to the world. Okay. So let's now go into your contribution to the world right now. First root. First root. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about that company, what it does? Give us a, a summary of what your focus is there. First root teaches children how to manage money by giving them money to manage. So it's not a game and it's not a simulation. And I can really rail on that for a second. But what we do is we teach kids how to manage money using something that I'm an expert in. And, and I, it's hubris to say you're an expert in something, but I am an expert in participatory budgeting. I've done it for the city of San Jose, for Sam Licardo and, and uh, uh, Mayor Reed. I've done it in cities around the world. I've done it in businesses around the world. I've done participatory budgeting for companies I've done participatory budgeting in Bogota, Colombia, in Gibraltar, in Tel Aviv, in Pune, India, in Singapore, in Auckland, in Gothenburg, Sweden, in Paris, France, in, in London, in New York, Chicago, Toronto, Mexico City, Guadalajara. I mean, you name it. I've flown there and we've done this before I had the software built and even after the software built. So I know that participatory budgeting is a deeply human thing. As I was building my company, Contenio, I was also doing participatory budgeting philanthropically for cities. And one of my kids was in middle school and I'm sitting at the dinner table <laughs> and I say, hey, I got an idea. And of course, everyone's like, oh, dad's got an idea. And I said, let's do what we're doing in cities and companies at the middle school. My wife says, oh, what do you mean? I said, let's give the kids 500 bucks and put the kids in control of the money. They choose how to spend it. And she's like, oh, babe, I don't know. And I'm like, okay. And my, my second son was in the middle school at the time. I said, hey, what would you do to make your school better? Just give me one idea. He said, oh, dad, we need a third lunch line. Because kids like me who bring our lunch, 
all I want is a drink and I get stuck in the line that's serving food. So if I had a third lunch line, it was drinks only, I could get my drink and go play. And I'm like, cool, operational engineering and a good use of the money. So we tried it. We took my software platform that I had built for businesses and we had middle school users using it. And they created ideas because there's a process, right? You have a process that you go through and I'll explain that in a second. They created ideas, they refined those ideas and they voted on those ideas. And they ended up choosing to replace the water fountain with an LK water bottle refilling station to be more green and refill their water bottles. So I started to get hooked and I started to realize, wait a minute, I've done participatory budgeting in business for market research and portfolio management. I've done participatory budgeting for cities to help citizens allocate money from the city budget. I just did it with kids in school and they learned financial basics, budgeting, and they learned civic engagement because they had a positive voting experience. So after I sold Contenio and I completed my integration tasks, I kind of felt a calling and I have to talk seriously. We know that there's a racial wealth gap of unconscionable levels. We have between white families and families of color, you pick your estimate and they're all huge. 10, 14, 17 time wealth gap, trillions of dollars. But what people don't realize is that if you're white and wealthy, you're like, yeah, the wealth gap exists. That's cool. What's not cool? Because when you look at the results and you look at the work of social scientists who've correlated the social impact of economic inequality and healthcare outcomes, you find that the more unequal the society, the worse it performs on every healthcare outcome. So America is the world's most unequal society. So where do we perform the worst at? Well, we have the highest rates of obesity. We have the highest rates of mental illness. We have the highest rates of gun violence. We have the highest rates of mass incarceration. We have the highest rates of teenage pregnancy. We have the lowest life expectancy of major developed countries. We have the lowest levels of measured trust. So I could go on, but all of these create this enormous drag in our economy to the point where if you don't like my data, go to McKinsey. McKinsey estimates that if we can close the racial wealth gap, we will create between two and four trillion dollars of improvement in GDP, meaning our GDP could be four to 6% higher if we help create a more equitable society. Now that means that when we talk about equity, we do not mean taking money from rich to give to poor. What we do mean is creating opportunities and education that enables people to succeed. And that's what participatory budgeting in schools does. So your current company, it was set up as a benefit corporation, a B Corp. Correct. Now that's something we haven't talked about on this show yet. We talked about, you know, C Corps. We've talked about, you know, Delaware C Corps particularly with a lot of the founders. Why a B Corp? And are you planning on raising capital because would you have to switch to a C Corp? Can you do that with a B Corp with investors? Tell us a little bit about a B Corp. Sure. Well, to the government, I'm not going to claim I'm a lawyer here. So I'm just- There's a little asterisk, the disclaimer. Yeah, not I, a lawyer, see a lawer, not a lawyer. See not a lawyer, see a lawyer. not financial advice. Not as financial advice, unless you're investing in me. Then I, I, <laughs> so here's my understanding and here's what's worked for us. The way I think about it is to the government from a tax perspective, a benefit corp is a C corp right? You're going to pay taxes. You have the same protections for tax liability, shielding the founder, et cetera. But a benefit corp is specific. We're a Delaware benefit corp. So we still incorporated in Delaware as a Delaware benefit corporation, but we have a stated public benefit that we're trying to create. And in our case, the stated public benefit is improving financial literacy. So why do we create benefit corporations or why, what was the legal reason to create a benefit corp? Well, if you're a C-Corp or an S-Corp or an LLC, you have a legal responsibility to do everything you can to maximize shareholder value. But what if I were to choose to do something that didn't maximize shareholder value, but was part of my corporate values? Well, theoretically, shareholders could sue you. And what benefit corporation status does is it says, look, if you're making a choice that may depress your profits, 
but it's in alignment with your stated purpose, you get legal protection. Now, this is hard to understand for startups. So let me give you an example that everyone will understand because it's a billion dollar company. Patagonia is a benefit corporation. Now, last year, Patagonia did something really remarkable. They stopped building or stopped making logo gear. So logo gear, for those of you who don't live in Silicon Valley, there's a joke that says it's not a job, it's a wardrobe. Because when you get a job at a Silicon Valley startup, they give you a coat and they give you a t-shirt and they give you a hat and they give you a sweater and they give you socks and you're laughing, you're smiling, but you know what I'm talking about. I, uh, I definitely have a, well, not so much now, but in the past, I've had a closet full of only startup clothes. <laughs> That's right. Only startup clothes. You get a gym bag, you get a backpack. And what Patagonia found though was, and, and Patagonia's goal is to make really high quality stuff that you buy once and keep until it truly wears out. So you don't need a coat every year. You need a coat every 10 years right? If it's Patagonia quality, what they found was that people, when they change jobs, would throw out their logo gear clothing. And that was antagonistic and in opposition to Patagonia's stated benefit of trying to reduce waste from people throwing out, like they're the anti-fashion company. They're trying to build durable stuff that is functional and lasts. They don't want you to buy a new ski jacket every winter. They want you to buy one ski jacket that lasts. So Patagonia made a choice to stop making logo gear and they calculated it was hundreds of millions of dollars of lost revenue. Now, if you're a shareholder of a normal corporation and those leaders decide to forego hundreds of millions of revenue, you could sue. But the purpose of the benefit corporation is to create legal protection against those choices. Now, a benefit corporation can raise money, they can be public, they can do all those other things. And in fact, I've raised money precisely because some of our investors want to promote the impact that we're trying to create, meaning there are enlightened people who realize that the equity gap that we've created is not sustainable for our society. They've realized that the polarization of our democracy is starting to crack our democracy. We're losing the opportunity to save our democracy if we can't come together and vote and discuss things. And by giving kids in schools a chance to debate and discuss how to spend money, we're creating in them a democratic experience that helps train them on how to be a good citizen when they graduate from schools and enter voting age. And there are investors who believe in that. And of course, I do believe we're going to make money and be a profitable company, just like Patagonia is a profitable company. So how does emotional commitment play in part of decisions for finance? How important is that? Well, it's, it's not so much that it's important. It's just that it is, right? I mean, you're kind of asking a behavioral finance question, right? We know that we are reacting emotionally to certain things. And then we, you buy with your heart and you justify with your head. So that's just part of behavioral finance 101, right? We've, we've learned so much from the, we used to have this, incorrect mental model of, you know, rational man and rational actors about rational financial decisions. And all the behavioral finance research says, yeah, it's not so much like that. Here's all these irrational things, risk loss aversion that I didn't lose, if you will, right? Or, or the fact that if, if I create a mug and I'm going to sell it, I value it higher than you want to buy it precisely because I made it. So there's, there's all sorts of psychological aspects of finance that... <laughs> That, that kind of throw out the rational man theory. And I don't mean to be gender specific here. I'm a rational person theory. There's all sorts of behavioral financial elements there. So I'm not, I'm not sure how to answer that question. Go to the next one. Before wrapping up, tell us a story of someone that, or a group that First Root is working with. Give us an example. Oh, there's so many. So our software goes into schools and it's not that we walk up to the school and say, hey, here's some money, figure it out. There's actually a structured educational process and it goes through five steps. The kids go into a discovery phase where they discover ways that they can improve their school. Then they use design thinking to dream big. Then they use design thinking to hone down their ideas and build out financial models and build out assessments of whether or not the idea is feasible. Then they vote, which is an, a convergent phase, and then they implement. So some of the schools we've worked with, and there's so many, 
here in the Bay Area in San Mateo, we worked with Hillsdale High School and that school and that classroom ended up, one of the things they bought were, was a coffee cart with coffee supplies as seed capital to create a coffee business in the school. Because they're like, hey, we live in Silicon Valley, what's seed capital like? And now they're really learning how a business works because they have to deal with inventory and cost of goods and sales. It's amazing. But they actually built a business using their own choice on seed capital. At Fremont High School in Sunnyvale here in the Bay Area, in their first program, they ended up buying more outdoor seating and a cabinet for posting flyers because what they didn't like was when they were posting flyers on the outside walls, the tape would fall down and then the flyers would create litter. So they bought a cabinet to post flyers. The Academy of American Studies, a high school in Queens, New York, it can be pretty profound. They bought more feminine care hygiene products for the girls' bathroom. Hegel Elementary School in Madison, Wisconsin, they bought the kids at the elementary school, bought soccer nets, fidget toys, and a, they planted tree at their school. In Topeka, Kansas, we worked with a collection of schools funded by Advisors Excel, a financial asset management firm. And Advisors Excel wanted to promote financial literacy. So they provided the funding to the schools for the program. And the funding, I should ask, uh, I should answer the question that people have is how much money do you give to the kids? So it's usually between $2,000 and $10,000, which is enough money to be meaningful to the kids, but not so much money that adults come in and take over. Because we really stress that the kids are in control. Uh, We just finished a program this week at Denver South High School, and they purchased a new mascot costume. (laughs) So it's it's their money, and and it's all good. That's fantastic. All right, Luke, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, what you're doing, what's the best way to go about doing it? It's easy. Firstroot.co. Go on the website or just type in Luke Homan. I am, I have a huge slime trail. I am easy to find. All right. We're going to have all that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, if you're looking for an investment banker to help you with mergers, acquisition, raising growth capital, or secondaries, uh, when I'm not doing this podcast, I am a uh, focused on the mid-market, lower mid-market. So please reach out to me at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com. You can find me there or my LinkedIn, Sean Flynn, investment banker. And I want to thank Han Hai one more time for allowing us to record in their facility. And I'd like to give a round of applause for our live studio audience here. And I want to thank Luke for coming in here on his birthday. So Luke, thank you for, for spending your time today with us on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.